0: Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue.
1: I hated the book, alright? I have no idea what it's about and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and
2: on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized.
1: And I only read 30 pages of it anyway.
2: Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? Mm
0: -hmm. It's required reading.
2: With Tom and Stella, episode 38, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates.
1: Toni Morrison, someone who knows a little something about literature, Just says a little bit. this is required reading. <laughs> uh, I want to start with one of the quotes in your book. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. What does that mean? Well, that's a statement of history. I mean, uh, the African-American presence in this country begins roughly, you know, about the time that, you know, this country's deep history begins, 1619. After that, we had 250 years of enslavement. Uh, After that, we had 100 years of Jim Crow. Jim Crow was enforced through violence, uh, through destruction of black bodies, through lynching, through uh, mass murder, through terrorism. Uh, Up until this very day, you know, where we are in this era right now, uh, where we have, police forces, you know, who are in our, you know, communities and we, you know, it seems like every week get a shooting or somebody beat death or somebody, you know, as we have with Sandra Bland, somebody, you know, who uh, dies under mysterious circumstances. And we accept this as a normal way of doing business. Uh, We think that it is okay to have the world's largest prison population. Uh, And we think it's okay that, you know, one particular ethnic group be overrepresented in that population prisons are violent. Incarceration is a violent experience. Bodies are destroyed in prison. Um, There's just no way to get around it as far as I'm concerned.
2: Hello and welcome back to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and we determine whether it is worthy of its reputation. As always, my name is Tom Panneries, and I do not have a witty duo uh, for my for my giggling co-host behind her microphone at the moment, so I'm, I'm kind of blanking, and I really can't think of one that's appropriate to this, so um, let's just say that she is uh, the ray to my fin. And uh, or something like that. She's <laughs> certainly right. Yeah, um, I might. I'm not cool enough to be Poe Dameron. And uh, um,
0: yes, it's me. I, I think Stella. the <laughs> reason why I was giggling yeah, is normally because you switched it up a little bit because you say, as always, I'm joined by bye dot 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 uh, but instead okay. you said as always my name is tom panneries and i thought <laughs> what was your name not ever tom panneries so you switched it up in in a very bizarre way so that's why i was y- laughing
2: you don't know me you don't know my life
0: <laughs> oh i guess that's true <laughs> i mean i thought i knew you but maybe i don't
2: <laughs> oh. uh, so how are you
0: Hey, I'm just like you. I am fatigued and ready for Christmas break. I just realized this will come out in January, but I yeah, think it, so. it doesn't really matter. So yeah, just making making my way to uh, to break, and I got uh, I landed a role in a local play that I'm excited about called Men on Boats. Hmm. So <laughs> that'll be an interesting next three months of rehearsal and then shows and everything. So it's both a fatiguing and exciting and scary time.
2: All right. Well, very cool. Yeah, I'm um, on yet another committee at work, so <laughs> <laughs> helping, oh, is, gosh. In, in this case, helping uh, look at survey data from something that people at uh, UVA Curry were doing about teaching what they call teaching hard literature, so looking at diversity in textbooks and spe- specifically diversity in works of literature that are taught in um, in English classes English language arts classes, so which is very apropos to this book um, so or this episode anyway.
0: indeed, yeah,
2: yeah, and then there's the, the you know three or four other things that I do, so yeah, it's just it's busy it's in 2020 it's probably just gonna be just as as busy, but I guess it's a good kind of busy. I guess. You're finding your joy in a, in a way.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, it's true.
2: So, and I'm at least... Did
0: you doing... want to be on that committee?
2: I did. It's something that I, as an English teacher, that I, I do care about and I do think about a lot, you know, how to, like, I diversify and take different approaches with what we're teaching, especially since uh, the Odyssey and Romeo and Juliet are only so appealing to a very diverse group of high school freshmen, so... Uh,
0: yeah, and I know how much you like it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I really like the Odyssey. I will say that it 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 can drag when you're trying to teach it, but you know my my feelings on Romeo and Juliet. And I'm sure that at I, some point we will I sure do. cover this play. This is where Stella is like laughing behind her microphone quietly because that's what she picked for next episode.
1: Yeah, how'd you guess?
2: <laughs> Anyway, let's before we reveal that, um, let's get to our pick. Uh, this is this is a work of nonfiction, and it's uh, we haven't done a lot of nonfiction. We did My Angels um I Know Where the Casebird Bird Sings, uh, March was a uh, March and Persepolis were and Fun Home. They were all memoir uh, along these lines. They're graphic memoirs. Uh, blankets, I believe, as well. All right, so we've done more nonfiction than I thought we would. Um, this is uh, this is nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, um, which is a – essentially, and I'll, I'll get to it in, in more uh, detail in my background and synopsis, but it's basically a personal narrative that's part memoir, part letter to his son, part look at uh, current-day uh, racial uh, issues. Um, so the question we start off with or the thing we start off with uh, – with regard to the book is, uh, what is our history with it? And since I picked it, I'm going to defer to you to talk about what your history with this book is.
0: Uh, I had never heard of it, to be honest. I know of Coates mainly through his comic writing and I knew he had done other things. And I think there's probably another book that I heard of that he wrote. But once you mentioned it, I was like, "Eh, I don't know what that is, but I'll, I'll read it before it's (laughs) time. So this is my history.
2: This is pretty much my history, too. I had heard of the book. I had seen it, um, people posting uh, that they'd read it. I'd seen it uh, on displays the library, bookstores, and things like that. Uh, it jumped out. And then um, I am part of a book club at work. I've mentioned this before. I think I mentioned this last episode. Um, that Our librarian, who is awesome, by the way, and, and deserves all the credit in the world for this, uh, she put together a book club that meets about once a month where we where the idea is to bring more diversity into uh, both the library and the curriculum and we read a book that could possibly be either taught or in the library for high school students and uh, we meet as a group we fill out a form that decides whether or not we're going to recommend this to be under review by the school board uh, so we're kind of that step toward like you know actually proving putting this on a reading list those sorts of things And we get like teacher relicensure and professional development points for it, which is really, really cool because, you know, you get to read sometimes young adult fiction. You get to read stuff like this. It's not, you know, the umpteenth education book, you know, like those sorts of really, really dry ones, which are torturous in themselves. Uh, So, yeah, so we we, we were assigned this. In fact, I was I had read a a previous one and I wasn't going to do the next one and then she said this was the book and i'm like i gotta do this because i've seen so many people reference this and 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 mention this either like somewhere in the social medias so it's like all right sign me up and about maybe just before thanksgiving maybe or maybe just a couple weeks ago we met and, and and discussed this and uh and discuss whether or not we would we would teach this so um that is my history of the book with the book it's a little bit more involved than yours but it is still the same time frame so let's get into history of the actual author himself and uh we have to once again share in my shame because i went to wikipedia for all this information i didn't really write an original synopsis or an original bio because i'm really busy lately <laughs> So I'm being a slacker. It's the second time we have this. We did it with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm really, really sorry about this. Born in 1975, Ta-Nehisi Coates is an American author and journalist. Coates gained a wide readership during his time as national correspondent at The Atlantic, where he wrote about cultural, social, and political issues, particularly regarding African-Americans and white supremacy. Coates has worked for The Village Voice, The Washington City Paper, and Time. He has contributed to The Washington Post, Washington Monthly O Magazine, The New York Times Magazine, and other publications. He has published three books, The Beautiful Struggle in 2008, which was a memoir, uh, Between the World and Me, which won the 2015 National Book Award for Nonfiction, and The Water Dancer, his first novel, which was published in 2019. He has also written a Black Panther series and a Captain America series for Marvel. In 2015, he received a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation. Coates was inspired to write Between the World and Me following a 2013 meeting with the then-sitting then sitting United States President Barack Obama. Coates, a writer for The Atlantic, had been reading James Baldwin's 1963 book The Fire next time, and was determined to make his second meeting with the president less deferential than the first. As he left for Washington, D.C., his wife encouraged him to think like Baldwin, and Coates recalled an unofficial fiery meeting between Baldwin Black activists and Robert Kennedy in 1963. When it was his turn, Coates debated with Obama whether his policy sufficiently addressed racial disparities in the universal health care rollout. After the event, Obama and Coates spoke privately about a blog post Coates had written criticizing the president's call for more personal responsibility among African Americans. Obama disagreed with the criticism and told Coates not to despair. As Coates walked to the train station, he thought about how Baldwin would not have shared Obama's optimism, the same optimism that supported many civil rights movement activists' belief that justice was inevitable. Instead, Coates saw Baldwin as fundamentally, quote, cold, without, quote, sentiment and melodrama in his acknowledgement that the movement could fail and that requital was not guaranteed, Coates found this idea, quote, freeing, and called his book editor Christopher Jackson to say, quote, why no one wrote like Baldwin anymore. And Jackson proposed that Coates try. Between the World and Me is Coates's second book following his 2008 memoir, The Beautiful Struggle. Since then, and especially in the 18 months including the Ferguson unrest preceding the new book's release, Coates somberly believed less in the soul and its aspirational sense of eventual justice. He felt that he had become more radicalized. The book's title comes from Richard Wright's poem, Between the World and Me, originally published in August 1935, issue of Partisan Review. I will, if I remember, include a link to that poem in the show notes, because I have it in our show notes right here. Wright's poem is about a black man discovering the site of a lynching and becoming incapacitated with fear, creating a barrier between himself and the world. Despite many changes in Between the World and Me, Coates always planned to end the book with the story of Mabel Jones. The only endorsement Coates sought was that of novelist Toni Morrison, which he received. Between the World and Me was published in 2015. After reading Between the World and Me, novelist Toni Morrison wrote that Coates, quote, fills the intellectual void left by James Baldwin's death 28 years prior. A.O. Scott of the New York Times said the book is essential, like water or air. David Remnick of the New Yorker described it as extraordinary. Michiko Kakutani of the New York Times wrote that Between the World and Me functioned as a sequel to Coates' 2008 memoir, which displayed Coates' talents as an emotional, lyrical writer. His use of the dream, in reference to a paradigm paradisal paradisal, suburban life confused her and she thought Coates stretched beyond what is safely generalizable. In particular, she felt that the phrasing of his comments on 9-11 could be easily misread. Kakutani thought that Coates did not consistently acknowledge racial progress achieved over the course of centuries and that some parts read like an author's internal debate. Benjamin Wallace-Wells of the New York Times said that a sense of fear for one's children propels the book and Coates' atheism gives the book a sense of urgency. The book topped the New York Times bestseller list twice for nonfiction on August 2nd, 2015, and was there for three weeks, and then it topped the same list again in January 2016. As I mentioned, it won the National Book Award in 2015 for nonfiction. It also won the 2015 Kirkus Prize for nonfiction. The book was selected by Washington University in St. Louis, as well as Augustana College in 2019 as the book for all first year students to read and discuss in the 2019 fall semester. In the same year, it was ranked seventh on the Guardian's list of 100 best books of the 21st century so far. So here is the plot synopsis, uh, as it is anyway. Between the World and Me takes the form of a book-length letter from the author to his son, adopting the structure of Baldwin's The Fire next time. The latter is directed in part toward Baldwin's nephew, while the former addresses Coates's 15-year-old son. Coates's letter is divided into three parts, recounting his experiences as a young man after the birth of his son and during a visit with Mabel Jones. Coates contemplates the feelings, symbolism, and realities associated with being black in the United States. He recapitulates the American history of violence against black people and the incommensurate policing of black youth. The book's tone is poetic and bleak, guided by his experiences growing up poor and always at risk of bodily harm. He prioritizes the physical security of African-American bodies over the tradition of in black Christianity of optimism, uplift and faith in eventual justice, i.e. being on God's side. His background, which he describes as physicality and chaos, leads him to emphasize the daily corporeal concerns he experiences as an African-American in U.S. culture. Coates's position is that absent the religious rhetoric of hope and dreams and faith and progress, only systems of white supremacy remain along with no real evidence that those systems are bound to change. In a way, he disagrees with Martin Luther King Jr.'s optimism about integration and Malcolm X's optimism about nationalism. Coates gives an abridged autobiographical account of his youth always on guard in Baltimore and his fear of the physical harm threatened by both police and streets. He also feared the rules of code switching to meet the classing social norms of the streets, the authorities, and the professional world. He contrasts these experiences with neat suburban life, which he calls the dream, because it is an exclusionary fantasy for white people who were enabled by, yet largely ignorant, of their history of privilege and suppression. To become conscious of their gains from slavery, segregation, and voter suppression would shatter that dream. The book ends with a story about Mabel Jones, the daughter of a sharecropper who worked and rose in social class to give her children comfortable lives, including private schools and European trips. Her son, Coates' college friend, Prince Carmen Jones Jr., was mistakenly tracked and killed by a policeman. Coates uses his friend's story to argue that racism and related tragedy affects black people of means as well. So that is a long uh, synopsis of the life of Ta-Nehisi Coates and a, a pretty succinct synopsis of uh, the book. Thank you very much, Wikipedia and Wikipedia editor people. So uh, before we start with the questions, we always ask the first one, which is, did you like it?
0: Aren't Wikipedia editors called armchair professors? I guess so. Okay. I just I was thinking about that. The the book was okay, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. And okay. I don't know if I can separate – is it the book that I don't care for or is it Coates that I don't care for? Mm-hmm. So that's where I am right now.
2: Okay. But- I did um, like it uh, in a way that I liked how I was able to engage with it – it's gonna sound odd to say I engaged with this book in a dialogue, but it, it felt like it felt like part of the book for me was was almost like a conversation. Sure. Um, and it it came off in places more like like philosophy um, or something of that regard. In addition to autobiography, like, like there was like there was a, um, you know, you know, acknowledging that he obviously, you know, he wanted to get a message across and knowing that seeing kind of engaging with what, how his beliefs are developing. The memoir part of it, I did find quite fascinating, at least some of the stories he was telling. And then um, because it was a window into a world that I did not have much knowledge of so there was so there was that um but yeah it's not it it, it, because it's a different sort of book than say even even the memoirs we've read you know um where uh i guess you know like fun home you can see commentary on homosexuality and you know and 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 what it was like to make that sort of self-discovery and like you know what what Bechtel bechdel was going through in the the time where she was discovering that she was, you know, gay, and you know, contemplating her relationship with her father and everything, but at the same time, that still is more of a story than this. This, the story to this seems secondary to what he's trying to tell his son, you know. So, so I'm kind of there with you. I think I might have liked it a little bit more. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, I think so. I wish you would have warned me that when I was about to read Virginia Woolf. I would have been more stream <laughs> of consciousness. He was very stream of consciousness.
2: Oh, okay, okay, sorry, you cut out there for a second. So.
0: I said, I wish you would have warned me. I was about to read Virginia Woolf.
2: Oh, (laughs) jeez. So um, this is now I will tell you that um, and I I, and I'm and my first question is, is, is this and and I will tell you that I was, you know, I picked this because I was like, you know, this would be a really, really this would be a good book to cover. But I knew that I I don't know, at some level, like I'm like, this is going to be a tough Episode because I think it's it's a to me the book is a little bit intimidating not that it's hard to read or anything but it has in the f- four short years since it's been published you know it's gotten all these awards it's one of those things that people point to is like you know yeah this is the this is the book to read so it's become like a capital I capital W important work almost immediately and uh, it's hard it's intimidating to me to um, approach a work like that with a critical lens because of the praise that you know th- that precedes it because when its reputation precedes it. And I don't have the best relationship with works that are capital I, capital W important works. you know some of them I hear like, oh, this is like you know the greatest piece of, of literature of the last 400 years and I'm like, why? You know, so um, I didn't have that feeling. But I also, there was also a bit of intimidation because, and this is our first question, neither of us is black. And we are, we both come from places of, to some degree or another, societal privilege. Uh, Coates in the book mentions what he calls the dream. And I was talking about neat suburban, he was talking about neat suburban life. And um, as the synopsis says, you know, an exclusionary fantasy for white people who were enabled by yet largely largely ignorant of their history of uh, privilege and suppression. And it's really a good descriptor in the context of the upbringing that I had, you know, where I lived in a very, very white middle to upper middle class town, uh, suburb, suburb. And so, you know, I don't have... You know, I don't know if if I could possibly empathize with what he's going through or if I would be expected to. So the question, I guess, is how do we approach this book, you know, as as who we are as far as race and demographic makeup and stuff is concerned?
0: Uh, I will say that the first black person I ever saw was uh, the Black Power Ranger. Hmm. That's that was my uh neck of the woods in um new york sure. uh yes so this is it is a tough question yeah we knew what we were doing well you did i did warn you and it's kind of like the bullist eye but in a different way
2: yeah
0: i think we approach it obviously with empathy and it's more i think reading it is more about understanding what um black people have gone through and continue to go through, I think to a certain extent, potentially I can understand maybe a bit more, if only because you have a sexual privilege that I don't necessarily have, Mm -hmm. uh, me being a female and you being a man. Um, So, Because there are some points where he talks about this oppression and I thought to myself, could this also not be you know could we talk about the native americans and how much trouble that they have gone mm-hmm. through or the hispanic or women and so he tailors it certainly for black americans but i think that some people can also experience um Similar aspects of his story, but at the same time, we don't need to take it over. I I don't think we're going to culturally appropriate this book and say like, "Oh yeah, 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 that's us." So I I think we can take a level of understanding and perhaps putting ourselves in his shoes. But I also think there's a line to it, and to not be disrespectful and be like, "Yeah, I I totally get everything," because really we don't. This is his story, Mm -hmm. and. only Coates has lived. Uh, There are some parts that I think are generalized that many black Americans have lived, but only, you know, Coates can live, you know, some of those. So just like other memoirs that we've discussed, I think there's a level that we can engage with it and there's a level that we can't and we we take it a step back and recognize that it's someone's story and hear it and learn from it, but we can't say this is also our story.
2: Yeah, I think you put that really, really well. Um, I think that the fact that he purposely keeps it to his own context helps at least illustrate, you know, what his thought process is and, and what his what his view is. Like, he doesn't try to speak for anybody, but really anybody but but himself or maybe um, maybe he kind of extends it to, you know, the African-American the black male the black man um and there is you know my second question was like you know how much is this book about being a man as much as it is a black man and are the two mutually exclusive and and i, I do wonder that because it's the only where there there's little places where i can tiny bit relate when he's talking about um some of the experiences he has as a father but even then i'm like no you can't relate to that because of the fact that you are not you know <laughs> you are not him you are not you know or anything like him um but at least i can kind of like when he tells some of the stories um you know i can either recognize them in that i've i'm familiar with the uh some of the struggles you know being a father or i can recognize them because I'm rec- i can i can recognize the the setting um he he talks about um, you know, so th- so that's where I was able to, to relate to it at least a little bit because he's talking about like you know Prince George's County, Maryland, and some of the, geographically some of the places where I've you know lived in those area like in, in the in the metro area there. So I know when he makes reference to certain things, I do you know I can remember some of the stories there. I know the areas he's talking about even if I haven't lived there. But yeah, you're right. It's it's you would, it would be um it'd be terrible to try to appropriate this as you know as you know within your own Whiteness, and it's also um, the the flip side of it. uh, Thinking of of people I have uh, have known in the past who who, when they hear stories of the stories like he tells, would be very very dismissive of him. And I think that's um, that's the other approach that you do not want to take as a as a reader of this book, as somebody who is white. You know, there there is the there is the um, reaction that some people have to works like this where they immediately start feeling defensive because they start feeling like they're being attacked because, you know, they didn't kill that kid or they didn't own the so, You know, like, you know, the, all, all the different like arguments I hear from people who are who are rather ignorant of their own, um, you know, kind of their uh, kind of ignorant of like what is actually being said when, when people talk about those things so why why frame this aside from the James Baldwin reference um and I did check the I did check out and read the, the fire um
0: did you read the whole thing
2: I did it's not very long the uh, fire next time is not very long uh the first part of it the part that he's directly um alluding to or or using for inspiration the letter to his nephew is actually the, a much shorter the much shorter half of the book which is
0: yeah, that's Not what I read.
2: Correct. Yeah, so the so it's a very and then the second part of the book is is um it's much longer. So I did read it. It's actually I think the second thing by James Baldwin I've read. I've read like a short story by him that's in an AP anthology. So um I, you know I, I thought it was good. I have to tell you I've read so much in the last few weeks since I've read that I'm trying to remember what exactly, um what exactly he was talking about um. But Baldwin is a writer who's a is kind of a blind spot to me. Um, but, you know, so aside from the fact that he is referencing Baldwin in, in writing to the son, why, why do you think he framed this in, in, as a letter to his son as opposed to just a straight up memoir?
0: Besides the Baldwin yeah, besides influence? Because it kind of sounds like he was forced into that, which is it one does. of the reasons why I sort of – Makes me a, a little unhappy. Um, Why frame it this way? Uh, I don't know. It's a bit. It's it's an interesting amalgamation of the two, you know, to pull it apart between his son being addressed and then him going off and and talking about his his life experience. Mm. I I don't know that I necessarily have an answer why he decided to do this. I feel like honestly it is because he was why don't you be the new Baldwin of this generation? And But he also, I think it was hard for him to keep from making it a memoir. So while it started off as a letter to his son, I think it exploded from there and it got a little too big mm-hmm. to just keep as a letter.
2: He's also got the social commentary in here, which kind of really does fit this letter format. That's where I was I was going back into the uh, the feeling something in here about being a man and being a father that I think is also tied that that's a thread that's running through here and and trying to do um, and this is this I, I'm not trying to come off as trite or pat here but trying to do right by his kid um, and the idea that you know he's you know his, his son's a teenager and this is this was published at a time where um, I could imagine if you're following the news back in 2015 when this is published, um, prior to that, you know um, you've got, and prior to that, um, you have well-publicized shootings of black youth by uh, by people. And I'm stalling because I'm looking something up. Uh, Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012. I just had to get the date right. Um, You know, and Trayvon Martin was 17 when he was killed. And I can't, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, And then you have Ferguson, the, the, the Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri happened. Uh, I think it was this thing. It was like 2015. It was, it was just prior to, or, or, or thereabouts. And, and you've had, you had other people who were either involved in incidents with police happening right around the time he was writing this. And some of them were young, um, uh, the, around the age of his son. So I can imagine that that also was a little bit of an inspiration. I don't know. Perhaps there was fear of this because the, because the incidents of police killing you know, or or, or treating uh, uh, treating black youth or black men with uh, with brutality or or even death is uh, is a thread that runs through this as well. So I was wondering I was wondering if it's it's just kind of it's kind of a layered a- approach to it um, that started with him kind of accepting the challenge of like you know why don't you write why why don't you write like Baldwin and then it kind of became its own thing from there. So the next question I have is about geography. Um, <laughs> you didn't think this is a geography class. Uh, so the letter, it's it's like we saw, it's, we were talking about how it's autobiographical, but there is a lot that of setting in this. You know, I mentioned the suburbs, but, you know, he grew up in, like, West Baltimore, which is not a, uh, still not the, best area. I've been, um, uh, there are, there are, I went to college in Baltimore, but I went, co- I went to college in like the Tony suburbs of Baltimore. So I didn't, you know, I went like uh, to Loyola, which is like near Guilford. And, and uh, I can't remember the other name of the other, the other, uh, the other neighborhood, but it's basically like, you know, a serious money uh, for people living in those neighborhoods. Uh, but then we would, you know, I had to do being, being at a Jesuit institution, we had to do service right. learning uh, in certain classes, and I do remember in my intro to was it my intro? No, it was it was a, it was a theology class, and because uh, we had to take an upper level theology class, and um, we had to do you know service learning volunteer, and I think I volunteered as a tutor after school homework help at a community center that that like a part of Baltimore like near where he near where he is describing. So he's so I could very very well picture it and then he talks about going to Howard University he talks about living in PG County and he also talks about New York he talks about Paris so why is location so important to him does it represent something bigger Um, am I grasping at straws here
0: ooh I suppose to get people an idea of – and it's only going to mean something, I think, for those that are residents in that particular area. And I think they would mm-hmm. best understand it, especially when he gets into the county lines and that – I will call it corrupt because it seemed corrupt – police force. Yeah. That just served and protected, if we want to say that, that one particular area. So I think it is important for him and even location because he has big He's – he's got – macrocosm and microcosm because even if you go to Howard, there are certain areas like the quad or whatever it was called. Mm -hmm. um, You know, he considers that Mecca, but I also felt like there was a center of Mecca and everything. So it's important, I think, for readers who know and it was important for him. And I think it potentially orients readers if they understand to give them a sense of, oh, yeah you know, perhaps there's a connotation with some of those places already. And so maybe he either leans into those histories or he educates people on those histories.
2: Yeah. I think, I think it's, I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B, his description of the, uh, rather corrupt police forces, uh, especially the problems in PG County, um, are very familiar to me um i never lived in pg county uh my my uh wife's grandmother did so i've been in in that in in that area i mean it's not a very small county it's it's big it's i don't know square mileage or whatever but you know you're you're talking a uh pretty big suburb of washington dc it's, it's just north of the district line. It borders, um, if, if you know anything about it, this is, people who know anything about about um, Washington, D.C. geography, it is the, um, basically the northeast to southeast uh, portions of D.C. It borders on those. So I saying it starts with, like, University of Maryland College Park, which is, like, right in, you know, College Park, Maryland, which is right on the border of Montgomery County, which Montgomery County is like the toniest suburb in Maryland and is not exclusively white, but has is more white. Uh, and, and so the contrast between Montgomery and PG County are, are very, very uh, stark. and um, But the stories that he's telling about PG County are things that I recognize not specific stories but in general because of just living in Arlington, because I lived in Arlington, Virginia for for the first like five or six years after college. Living in Arlington and just watching like, you know, the local news. And, you know, so there are just a lot of these stories like, you know, he's talking about I'm like, you know, I I recognize the the thing. And and it is the, the irony of a suburb that is mostly black and has a police force that seems to go after You know those people more than any other, and it's, you know, um, talking about kind of kind of (laughs) undermining that idea of the dream. You know, Um, you know, maybe I'm reading too into it or whatever, but like, you know, I thought we'd be safe here, and that whole thing of of the suburbs and the dream uh, made me think of Lorraine Hansberry's *Raisin in the Sun*. And going back to the history of that, which if you're unfamiliar with it, I would read *Raisin in the Sun* if if you're listening and, and and you're interested in that. And and I would also read about the history of the suburbs and the practice of redlining, which was a practice that, uh, before it was finally outrightly banned by like you know the Equal Housing Acts and things like that, was the uh, practice of. Realtors and other organizations literally drawing red lines on maps and saying that you cannot you will not sell to black people on this side of this line and then jacking up the prices for housing for any for for anybody who was not white, especially African-Americans. And uh, there was a really, really good uh, expose in Newsday up on Long Island uh, about a month ago or so. Where this practice is not, it's not legal anymore, but they they showed how realtors do it subtly by directing white clients towards certain towns and black, Hispanic, other people of color toward other towns. So it still goes on. So the, the idea of, of what he's calling the dream and what people are kind of like, how how it's undermined, I think is is very well um I think it's very well stated, but yeah, you were talking about Howard. So I'm skipping down a question. Um, like you know, he refers to it as Mecca or the Mecca. Why is this? What's the? What's the? the I mean, the connotation is obvious. <laughs> the illusion is obvious. But um, you know, so why do you think? But why do you think he he gives it that uh that particular uh, title of praise?
0: <laughs> it's interesting because this guy is an atheist and so it's with with the well he's not anything so so the fact that he's got a uh a religious connotation with it mm-hmm. is very interesting I think it's as paradisical paradisical as uh-huh. it can get for him to be, to a certain extent Howard was where he could be I think his freest and he was surrounded by like-minded and just similar individuals and he learned a great deal so I think it was for him if the white people had the dream this was Mecca was for him that that dream there
2: Mm-hmm. Because it obviously contrasts with his upbringing in Baltimore, you know, which is rough. And and he learned how to, you know, he talked about things like code switching. I, I assume you know what code switching is. I don't know if our audience does. Um,
0: well, you can explain it.
2: Would you like me to explain it. it for our audience? Code switching is a linguistic term where you will, and this usually happens for people who are from different cultures, um, whether they are, um, say, you know, black or Hispanic or, or, or Asian, where uh, they will they will change the way they talk depending on who they are around.
0: Uh, sure.
2: Yeah. So the, uh-huh. the, the, one of the best examples I actually can can point to is a wonderful essay by Amy Tan called Mother Tongue. And she it's exactly what she describes of how when she talks to her mother, because her mother is a Chinese immigrant. And when she talks to her mother, she tends to talk in a, and I'm not going to do the voice because if I do the voice, it's going to sound offensive, but a sort of sing-songy, quote, broken English type of thing with a very, very heavy accent. Yet when she talks to her husband or I think, yeah, I think she's talking to her husband, she speaks as, cl- you know, she speaks almost like in the way you and I would speak, you know, just just. Very generic sounding English, um, and so you know, so and it's just a, a just a showing of code switching in, in, in the stories and everything. It's a really really good essay. I recommend it. Um, so he talks about that. He talks about like you know how he learned to adapt to the, the things, and then and then he, he also talks about you know going there and learning. So he's a couple of years older than I am. Um, he was born in seventy five. I was born in seventy seven. So he would have been in college. He would have been wrapping up college about the the time I was like halfway through my college experience or or thereabouts so we were you know we were you know this we're talking about the 1990s um and howard being really the probably best known historic black college university hbcu and um notable also because it's one of the few if not the one that is not in the south and that was not built in like, you know, a former slave state because Washington, because it was built in Washington, D.C. Um, and I, I did notice that he um, he's got like on pages 55, to 53, 55. He talks about, you know, how he would interact with his professors. And, you know, he comes in, he's you know, 17, 18 years old and he comes in having you know, read the works. You know, he refers to himself as a Malcolmite. And uh, he says, you know, his professors are trying to temper him in some way, having seen Malcolmites like him. You know, in other words, kind of this, we've seen people like you, the angry young man, the radical one, the one who's got all the opinions, and they seem to be kind of trying to put that down. Why would they do this? And uh, you know, why would he, Why would they do this? And then he makes this connection to Africa in it. You like, you know, what? What? So it's pages fifty three to fifty five. If you have a copy of the book, um, in front of you, and it's just, it's, 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 an interesting thing where it's like, it's almost this like intergenerational thing. So like, why, why would they do this? They see this person who's like, you know, just really, really passionate. It's like, you know, like, oh, hold your horses there, <laughs> you know. So
0: why specifically try to train him out of being a Malcolmite? Yeah. Well, I well, I don't know if every at this time when were when were we here seventies
2: uh, when he the 90s. when he's
0: going to college
2: he's in you college said he's
0: the, oh the nineties he's okay. only a couple okay. of years
2: older than I am so he would this would have been the 90, the 90, the early to mid nineties
0: okay um I don't know if young black black men went to college and um had this dream of being maybe a doctor Martin wait. Oh, sorry.
1: Malcolm
0: X. <laughs> yes, completely different person. I'm sure there were young men, though, who wanted to be like Dr. Martin Luther yeah, King. Yeah, right. um, um, but yeah, I wonder if they went and had this idea of I'm going to be the next dot dot dot. Just like, you know, anyone can go to any college and say I'm going to be the next blank, you know. Um, I maybe that's what it is. I And the mm-hmm. maybe the the professors are doing in a way what. Coates is doing for his son and i guess trying to be more realistic level as well as pull him down to and that you achieve these things that you're trying to achieve so just try to stay under the under the radar and you know be be average and normal i don't know
2: <laughs> yeah it's it's a it, it's an interesting like the, the whole thing about his education to me was one of the more interesting parts um I guess being a teacher, you know, and, and being somebody who studied political philosophy in college quite a bit, um, but who, again, deficiency in my own education has never read Malcolm X. And so that's on the sort of, you know, I probably, you know, I should should read this list. Um, yeah, I just, I was, but I was looking at it. It's like, you know, um, I, I saw the very typical just adolescent, Post adolescent arrogance that a lot of us tend to get, especially when we get into college, and all of a sudden, like you know, we're either we're, the, we're we're smart anyway, and we're we're free from the bonds of high school and and just the just the the crap that can be high school, um, the crap that I contribute to on a daily basis. By the way, um, uh, <gasps> you know, like you know, because there Speak are people for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> there are people who go to college and they're like, you know, now I can truly learn, you know, and, and so it sounds, I'm, I'm sounding like totally pretentious by saying this, but there's this sort of, you know, and, and then there's this, uh, there's a sort of like, you know, I'm, you know, learning all these things and knowing all these things. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, uh, when you're that age, you go all in, right. You know, and, and I, I wonder if they're, if they're trying to, if they're trying to teach him patience in a way. And so this is where, like, this is where I was saying, like, you know, you have end up having this conversation with the book, and trying to figure out um, what exactly he is saying when, as somebody who is cannot relate to his experience, is, um, you know, you know, as somebody like that, like, you know, um, there, there were. Uh, so you know like <laughs> sorry I'm like tripping over my own words here because um, I'm trying to get this right that's the other thing that's like when I said this is like one of those things where like you know I don't even know if I'm right about what I'm what I'm saying there um, he's you know he, he's he's just talking about like you know how he uh, just on a very very kind of broad level like is connecting to things that he did not necessarily learn about in the past uh, and didn't know they were there so other works of literature and art and philosophy and um of you know Africa as a place, as opposed to uh, the more like you know white lens he was probably taught about when he was in you know when he was in school for real. So and I, so yeah, I
0: yes, but why Malcolm? Um, I mean, surely not all the students going to Howard felt that they were the acolytes of Malcolm X.
2: I'm trying to think of why, and I know that Malcolm X, when you compare him to King, was more. I don't know if radical is the word, but he, he did advocate for um he did advocate for a, a, a his philosophy was more, more more tough. It was it was more uh it was more I don't wanna say violent is not the word, but you know, we we tend to in just very simplistic terms put them on opposite sides of a of a belief system about, you know, the means by which to achieve this equality. And, you know, people hold up, you know, King because King was nonviolent resistance and and um you know you have that phrase by any means necessary um and so that would be the it would be appealing to a teenage youth who was coming into his own and perhaps getting angry at the world and um, if they picked up a book and found this, it probably could speak to him the way that, say, certain art forms, like certain forms of music, whether they be rap or, or some sort of, you know, like white kids discovering punk or something might be. So I can totally see why Malcolm X would be because of the, the thrust of what he had to say and the, um, and the more forceful. I think that's the word I was looking for means by which he, by which we associate his philosophy. Also, if I'm tracing the, uh, kind of the chronology here, it's very likely that this is a, this was, he's probably in college around the time or right after the time where Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie came out. And oh, okay. so so also this is, you know, so you also have his formative years dovetailing with a, a, a big moment in pop culture. That movie was uh, that movie was was big. And Denzel Washington played Malcolm X and it was um, infamously snubbed the Oscars. But it was a you know, the, the uh, there were a lot of people walking around um, with uh, black hats with the with the X logo from uh, from the movie on it. And so it was a uh, cultural touchstone of the time. So I could see how that might have also contributed to it as well. And then I could see also like an old grizzled college professor going, these kids with the movies and all of a sudden everybody's a Malcolm X fan. You know, like that sort of thing. So I, it's from a, from a kind of a comical perspective. Like, oh, everybody loves Malcolm X now that Denzel's playing him in a movie or something like that too. But I think more along the lines of, like, you know, it's probably just hit him at the right time. And, yeah. and that's where that's the path he was going down, because it was just, you know, it was timing and and, and how he was feeling. And it, and it spoke to him. We are going to talk about the Prince Martin Jones murder, which is <laughs> uh, a, yeah. a lot of time in the book, because then he talks about his mother. But I want to my mom kind of made me say that toward the end um but i I do want to talk about like new york really quickly because there's two incidents that stand out to me the first is uh they go to they're with their kid and he's their son he's about the kids about like five or four or five and he's going to preschool and they're doing like one of those tryout days um we're like oh
0: yeah you know
2: you bring the kid yeah. you probably know the thing and 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 it's it's actually one of the funnier scenes at least to me who's my granted brett's 12 years old now but like you know when he was little you know the preschool and then the the tryout the kindergarten the application pro, you know all the, the things and you know and and he's talking about like you know his kid going going off and just kind of like running off and finding something to play with and he's like you know Yes, I found it. It's on page 91 to 92. He says, One afternoon, your mother and I took you to visit a preschool. Our host took us down to a large gym filled with a bubbling ethnic stew of New York children. The children were running, jumping, and tumbling. You took one look at them, tore away from us, and ran right into the scrum. You have never been afraid of people of rejection, and I have always admired you for this. and always been afraid for you because of this. I watched you leap and laugh with these children you barely knew, and the wall rose in me, and I felt I should grab you by the arm, pull you back, and say, We don't know these folks. Be cool. I did not do this. I was growing, and if I could not name my anguish precisely, I still knew... That there was nothing noble to it, but now I understand the gravity of what I was proposing—that a four-year-old child be watchful, prudent, shrewd—that I curtail your happiness, that you submit to a loss of time. And now, when I measure this fear against the boldness that the masters of the galaxy imparted to their own children, I am ashamed. So the the moment is kind of funny because four-year-olds are not self-conscious, and so you're so just as a that is one of the few moments of the book where I could like completely relate to it because I was like, you know, as a parent, I could be like. Yeah, I remember those moments of, like, you know, me being the self-conscious one in the room and him being like, you know, hey, later I'm going to go play with these kids. Um, But at the same time, there's something – he's attaching something bigger to that where um, he's talking about, like, you know, how he's struggling to not be overprotective of his son because he's seen all the things that have happened to him and all of people like him. And and he wants to shield his son from that. And then, about a couple of pages later, there's the confrontation outside the theater where they went to see um, Howl's Moving Castle on the Upper West Side. He was five, so it's about a year or so. Oh,
0: late. so good.
2: And they were on escalators down to the ground floor and the kid was moving because kids move really slow, you know, because he's five. And some some lady... Uh, a white woman pushed you and said, come on. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he says, many things now happen at once, you know, and so he gets into a uh, confrontation with Karen and
0: her name's Karen.
2: No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being cheeky. Uh,
0: oh, okay. I was like, wow, he knew her name. No, I didn't remember gets, that.
2: He, he gets in, he, in other words, you know, he gets into a confrontation with her and then, and, and he, you know, he gets very, very angry. And then he says, "My words were—I turned and spoke to this woman, and my words were hot with all the moment of all my history." She shrunk back, shocked. A white man standing nearby spoke up in her defense. I experienced this as, as his attempt to rescue the damsel from the beast. And then um, the guy came closer. He grew, he grew louder, and I think he shoved him at once. One point, and the guy said, "I could have you arrested." He says he came home shook. It was a mix of shame for having gone back to the law of the streets with mixed rage. "I could have you arrested," which is to say, I could take your body. So there are different types of incidents, but they're kind of similar. And how, you know, what what's he what is he trying to get across to us as the reader? Because it's obvious what he's trying to get across to his son. So what do you think he's trying to get across to the reader?
0: Um, that it's a dangerous world, and some sometimes even protecting your own child can be perceived in a bad way, and then it would be even worse if you try to protect your child. Mm-hmm. But also that, yeah, they're just, I mean, they're pushed around, I guess. Um, I, I'm trying to think if someone would pu- push – a five-year-old... I mean, what type of person would push a five-year-old child, period? So I don't know if it was also because he was black, like, he happened to be black, and so this made it even worse, but... So she doesn't seem like a decent human being, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder to what extent, like, the race actually entered into Karen. I, I think I for him... I think absolutely it played a part, and so he rushed into that and tried to protect his son. And so that episode I think just shows that they always seem to be on the wrong on the wrong side of what's right and the law and everything because just him trying to protect his son would have put him on the wrong side of the law even though he was just trying to protect his son. So it just seems like they're always facing injustice is, is what I would think. think about that first one you said because you said he didn't want to be over – Yes he you, you didn't want to be over overprotective of his son mm-hmm. um, and to but I don't know if you accidentally contra- contradicted yourself or it just makes me like this book even less but he should Probably have been did. protecting his son. He, I, I don't know if he this is my actual my main issue with this work's work is that in a sense he doesn't protect his son okay. I think that he tells him how it is. That it happened to him, that it happened to Coates, and it's going to happen to his son, and that his son, and he even gets it to this. He, you know, even though his son can try to su- to succeed and do all of this, the world's still going to beat him down, and there is absolutely no hope in this work, and he doesn't even provide any hope for his son, and so I can absolutely see, like experience but why can you not instill some sort of hope is your your view of everything so bleak that you don't think there's any change coming um because i feel like there is change but it's so slow that maybe people ignore it and so the fact that he just let his son go potentially to i don't know learn from the school of hard rocks or embarrass himself i have an issue with that i have an issue with him not comforting him during that time when he was in his room and yeah, he does explain it away, but I've just got you know writing a letter to your son is one thing, but the word the words that you put in there, I think um, that's why I've got a I've got an issue with this particular book.
2: Okay, I, I, and I see that you and I guess we can we can get into the um, <laughs> actually no, we'll, we'll get into the, the why there feels to be no hope in here because we can also get into the you know the, kind of the one of the things that is kind of the centerpiece of the at least the second half of it, but um, the thing about the you know uh, that he's essentially telling his son that yeah you're right it's like you know it, there is a there's a bit of, of pessimism there and and he's apologize he it seems like he is apologizing to him for the incidents that had happened at least the two that I was describing at least that second one but like the the, the conversation so the thing with the preschool I found amusing because like because like I said you struggle as an adult to not put the same hang-ups and self-consciousness that you have onto your child, you know, um, because, you know, your issues with society, social situations, embarrassment, those sorts of things are not automatically theirs. So like, you know, so I, maybe I misread the scene as like, just kind of this funny thing of like, you know, we've all been there. We're trying not to project onto our kids, but at the same time, there is the There is also the whole. Am I allowed to be here? Sort of of moment. And you know, you know, are are we allowed to be here? The kind of. Um, and then you have the the moment outside the theater, which kind of is a catch twenty two. And that's how I kind of view the situation. It's like, you know, you you have this woman essentially shove your son out of the way, who. If you told her she was being racist, probably would have said she wasn't, you know, because she, she didn't perceive it as such. And her, she would have, you know, she would have, she would have gotten very, very offended if you if you call her for being that, um, because she wasn't doing it probably, um, you know, I don't think she probably was doing it consciously because the kid was black. She was just probably just thought she was wanted to move into there. She was she was being this rude, despicable New Yorker of which there are millions, but at the same time. <laughs> There is a subconscious or an underlying racism in a lot of people that does not seem to be racist on the surface, at least to us when you're committing the act. And it's not just racism it's bigotry as well. You know, it's the it, you know, so it could be it could be little flare ups like that or it could be the um years and years of being taught when you see a, when you see a story on the news of a, of a black uh, of a black young man being killed by like a police officer or something to immediately question what the kid was doing you know like you know, things like you know almost like going like right into the blame the victim and and women women get this too especially when you're talking about things like sexual assault you know the the, the classic The classic BS thing is like, you know, well, what was she wearing? And it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, so like, you know, things like that where it's where where you're doing it because it's been so ingrained in you to think in those lines. And, you know, and she might have been more polite to a white person. But she doesn't realize that she would have been more polite to a white person I mean mean, I'm kind of this is conjecture because we don't get much of her beyond this incident but I but knowing people like her growing up around people like her um, leaving people like her behind um, it 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 strikes me as very real but you know in that situation he will feel guilty if he's overly apologetic to her because it's sort of a once again I'm you know, stepping aside for the, you know, for the white lady. But the other side of it is he reacts, he gets angry and all of a sudden he's a scary, angry, angry black guy. And that's, so that's, that's the conflict I see there in that scene. And and to me, that seems, um, it comes off as a very honest scene because it seems very psychologically real. Um, and again, not something that I am familiar with, but something that I, just in reading this, like I can totally, you know, totally see playing out, and the way it does. And um.
0: But if someone laid laid hands on your son, you would absolutely go after them.
2: Oh yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I think he had every right to. I'm not saying he didn't, but I'm saying just in, just in terms of what he's talking about, he's saying he's he starts to feel guilty for doing it because um you know he's 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 been told you know you're not supposed to be like that either you know and so there's so like that's why i said it's a catch 22 you know i didn't if if i was if i was deferential to her and i and i apologized for my kid what message is that sending to my kid but then at the same time when i go to defend him all of a sudden i'm the bad guy in the situation um and i'm i'm just i'm not saying i'm so i'm saying that that's that's why i think he is so conflicting. that's why he is so upset at the whole situation when he, uh, you know, when he says he gets home because he, f- he feels guilty for, for the way he reacted. But at the same time, anybody could tell you that, yeah, you're going to get your haunches. You're going to get put on your haunches. If somebody touches, lays a hand on your kid, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So the other thing you were talking about, and, and this will be, this is, this is actually a good way to, to kind of like, you know, wrap up our conversation because it'll bring in the whole, um, the thing about Prince Martin, Yeah, Prince Martin Jones and his mother. The last question I had was, does this book make you feel optimistic, pessimistic, cynical, or hopeful? And you were saying there's, like, (laughs) no hope in this book. Why and where do you think he gets that? Does that sound intelligent?
1: Like,
0: where does he get why, yeah why do so if no i choose optimism book, where, do where does he get from? optimism yeah
2: like yeah so like you know, like why like you were saying that you feel there's no hope in this book okay so why do you feel there's no hope in this book you know i guess elaborate on the answer you had and where do you think that comes sure. from
0: i guess it comes from his experience and so growing up and and his life there's not it's not really been much in the way of protecting him and and allowing him to keep his own body and so he believes that that is something that is not going to change and so he wants to prepare his son for that um so i think experience i honestly think (laughs) it it goes back to the religion piece um the fact that he's an atheist i think and if he had believed I had believed in any higher power, I think that this would have been filled with at least a little more hope than the no hope that's in there. But I think there's just there's nothing. I mean, I mean, what's the point if if there's nothing nothing there? Why why are we living our lives kind of? I mean, well, you would hope that we're living our lives to make the world as as good a place as we possibly can and leave it for the next generation. If that's you know today to the extent of my belief, but even so, like, he doesn't even have that, you know. He's telling his son that you're going to get beaten down no matter how hard you try. James Baldwin, on the other hand, had a a relationship and a place in the church. He had left the church at, at one point, but there's still, there's that hope there. So I think even though he perhaps wasn't a practicing Christian, you know, the, the latter part of his years, that was still ingrained in him. And so telling his nephew, and I think there were other letters or essays that he had, you know, trying to get his nephew to Um, broach and move towards the white man, because even though it's the white man's responsibility to broker that peace and make things better, they're not going to do it. We're not going to do it because we're terrible people. So they have to, unfortunately, the the, the burden that's that's how he related to his son, but that there will be peace, there will be some sort of some sort of forward progress, but he just has to be the one to step forward. That's what he told his nephew. There's none of that here. There's none at all, and uh, it's just it's it's sad. It's like that's what you're gonna you're gonna leave your son with, who is 15 years old right now, is that there's not much to going for him. He's his body is not his own. His body will never be his own. He's always gonna be shackled down. I think that's so I think it's his lack of religion and it's uh, his experience. And I'm very sorry that that's his experience. I know that's true of everyone, but I'm hopeful. I at least have hope that this at some point is going to change. I speak from a female perspective because, of course, we were very much shackled. Our bodies are were not our own. You could almost argue, depending on what your stance is on abortion, that our bodies still are not our own. Um, But there's been. Forward progress, you know, a little bit at a time. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that things will get better. It just, unfortunately, is not very quick.
2: Yeah, I, he he frames it. He does make the same point where he says that, uh, and he, he's a little more stark about it. He says, "I do not believe that we can stop them because they must ultimately stop themselves." You know, that that idea that you know, um, like you were just saying. But he he talks about how he still urges his son to not to struggle and the word struggle i think he, he's deliberately in the in the placement of the word struggle. this is the very very end of the book he's very deliberate in using the word struggle because it can be it can have different connotations you know it can have the very very pessimistic connotation of a very very difficult task and and um and innocence of hopelessness but it can also have a slightly more positive connotation being the the work that you do um i i think i think he's just more of a realist or at least he is becoming disenchanted because at the time he was reading this it was just you know there there was a sense of you know a continuing sense of of hopelessness coming toward him and um, if he's reflecting on the times in which he's living and then reflecting back and, and going even further back um, to, to, you know, he could see times where he had where he had that hope. And I don't know if he's if he's particularly completely lost it, but it's I see it more of, you know, maybe not necessarily hopelessness, but there's definite frustration. And when you see that, when when you have to confront that frustration and the kind of existential frustration that he's going through that he's talking about because he, he talks, he he comes, you know, with, uh, coming away from Mabel Jones's house and, and talking to talking about her son. And, And the story of, of Prince Carmen Jones is, it's really tragic. Uh, basically he was misidentified as somebody who was like, had a warrant out for his arrest or something. And a cop followed him from like, I think it was like over a state line or over a county line, like into Virginia and shot him and killed him. And when he was, you know, when he was completely, you know, innocent and and we've seen it's, it's a scene we've seen played out over and over again. You know um, if it's not him, it's, you know, I go back to when I was in high school and, and coach was like in college and I'm so actually surprised he doesn't really mention this because it was such a huge event culturally back in the early 1990s. But I, th- but it, I think of like the first time I saw that and I saw it was via like, you know, the Rodney King beating. And so when you, and, and then you go further back and you see what we saw, like when we read March a couple of years ago, God, that's how long we've been doing this podcast it's the same thing over and over and over again. And you go even further back. And this is only because I just finished teaching a unit on beloved and you see the way future slave laws are enforced and everything. It's like, you know, you, you keep going further and further back and you see this one incident and it's just the latest in a long line of things that have been going on for like 400 years. And so I see where that hopelessness comes from and where that frustration comes from. And, I wonder if he purposely didn't try to end on a positive note because he didn't want to come off as naive, because I don't think it's naive to have hope, but faced with that and then, you know, and and maybe he was trying to be honest in a way that comes off as sounding hopeless or cruel or something or pessimistic when he thinks he is being honest or realistic in terms of like, you know, this is what you will have to struggle with. And yes, it looks very, very dour. And it's tough because like I can turn around and say, from my point of privilege, turn around and say, oh, it'll it'll get better, you know. But at the same time, he's seeing the scenes like, you know, I don't know if it'll get better. So like I think I think there's a real honesty in that. And so that's where I that's what I did appreciate about the book. But I also appreciated about that, though, was that it's a very, very arguable and debatable point that we can make um, no matter who is reading it. And and that's part of the conversation I think you can have with the book.
0: Would you is this how you would write to your son?
2: Um, it depends on what I'm writing about and depends on the experiences at the moment. You know, obviously, I don't have the experience that Ta-Nehisi Coates does and I don't have the you know, I don't face the same the same struggles um but again i i I can't i I can't honestly answer that and say yes because i because i fully acknowledge the privilege from which i'm talking and if he's struggling with something i i I can't i'm not going to say hey you're a white you're a white guy you'll be fine because that's awful to say but at the same time, acknowledging my own privilege and in society and acknowledging the advantages given to me and given to him by you know who is where we are. Um, I don't think my message would sound as sound as negative as, as this one is coming off as. So I, 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 I don't think I can honestly answer the question because I'm not.
0: Okay. Well, I just wondered if you would. It's more the message. Would you leave him with hope or would you, I guess, tell him how it really is and leave it in in a note of despair?
2: Uh, I think it would depend on what exactly we were talking, like what exactly the topic of my letter was and what I am struggling with and what he is struggling with, because I could see certain situations Without getting too personal, without getting into too much of politics and, and things like that, I can see situations where I would feel a little more hopeless and say that you are going to endure a struggle to survive on a massive level, and your generation is, that my generation didn't have to up until now. We're going to try to do this together, but it's 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 going to look really, really terrible. But there are other situations where if it's more personal, I could say... You know you will grow and you will you will get through whatever struggles you might be getting through and you will grow and you'll be fine. I think the other thing is that you know, he's twelve. Tana Coates' son is fifteen. The the people getting killed that he's describing and the, the teenagers getting killed, you know. They're around his age, so he's also he's also kind of coming from a place of ups, of being upset and and feeling an, and an urgency, and maybe even a fear that these kids are getting cut down, that he
1: mm-hmm.
2: like he worries that his son's going to get cut down at, at at a young age, and also the fact that um, Prince Martin Jones, sorry Prince Carmen Jones was part of the dream, you know that the dream with the capital D that he talks about. He was not you know, he was, I'm not trying to blame, not, you know, you don't, you wouldn't play the victim blame game with him, you know, in the way that a lot of people do, because he was essentially, wait, he was living the suburban life, you know, so the, so the whole idea was that like, you know, uh, as it said in the synopsis, you know, um, racism and related tragedy affects black people of means as well, you know, so the idea that you could, you could escape the, you could escape West Baltimore and become somebody of note, or somebody of means, somebody who's living much more comfortably, and yet it still can happen, and I think that's where that's where the despair comes in. That there's an there's a feeling of of, of inescapability of it, and he's he's probably worried more than anything. So I think we've covered this. This was a this was a tough one, and um. So it's been a while since we've had a tough one like this. Now, on the lighter side of things, Robert Ward did point out <laughs> that the question of every episode might not have to be asked next time. Because according to Toni Morrison, this is required reading. At least that's what the book cover says. I am going to ask the question, yeah. do we agree with Toni Morrison? Is this required reading?
0: Uh, I don't... <sighs> I don't think so. If I were to choose between him and James Baldwin, I'm going to go with James Baldwin, I think.
2: Okay. I would, because it's a more contemporary context. um, I probably would throw Baldwin in there as well. Um, I think this would – just the conversation we're having, it's a book that I think a lot of the students we teach might be able to relate to and debate and discuss and find accessible and I think that's why it is and when they've had an education that is very framed in, in a more kind of a more white perspective it is good to have this perspective whether or not they agree with it whether or not they like it is another thing so um, I mean I mean, so for them it would be required for, for others I would recommend it but I almost feel like like I said you have to be you have to be ready for what it is, and like I said, I, I I feel I like I worry like like I said I went and wor I went into the discussion putting together this discussion and everything, worrying that I could, you know, not worrying about you because you're fine you're like goddess of podcasting but I worry that I don't I don't know how to do this justice in a way that somebody else would but I wanted to tackle this as a tough book to talk about because books like this and things like this are conversations that I think more people need to have. So anyway, so thank you. Thank you for, thank you for doing this because it's, like I said, it was um, probably one of our tougher episodes. Okay. So we do have one piece of feedback. It is about our most recent um, episode on blankets. And there was a back and forth on Facebook between our scholastic book buddy and Stella's um, nemesis, Robert Ward. Um, <laughs> so why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and take take it away as far as what you said, what he said and then how you replied and then we can kind of maybe elaborate on that a little bit.
0: Our scholastic book buddy is Robert Ward, right? Yes. Okay, you made it sound like there are three people involved in the discussion, our scholastic book buddy and Robert Ward and oh, me. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Okay. Our scholastic book so buddy, to,
2: our scholastic buddy just and, just one of and your nemesis Robert Ward and you. Uh,
0: I and see what can, you did there. And then we can oh, elaborate on. Okay, it. I see what you did, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Robert Ward, he says I can't wait. I hope – oh, is regarding Blankets? Yes. I'm not sure what the Hope It Does
2: business is. It was. might have been the, so I'll just skip to the in there.
1: yeah.
0: Do the other thing. I read Blankets not too long ago and got a little nervous with how religion was being depicted and how it aligned with my general view versus the knowledge that Stella is religious. Hearing her on the religious journey is going to be interesting. Uh, I did say that I didn't feel like I did, did well leading that point of the discussion, so I t- – I told Robert to, as I'm sure he will, uh, let me know if there were any lingering questions. And he said, I'm sure he did just fine, reflecting how you felt, since it was pretty obvious from the get-go that he's going to cast some serious shade against organized religion. I will post anything I have after hearing, though. And I guess we have yet to receive any lingering questions. So maybe that will be next month.
2: Yeah, as of this recording, it posted, I think, last week. Um, And I know it's been iffy showing up in feeds because the TTFY site has been having – Oh, uploading yes, issues and ships. posting issues. It did. It did post in the required reading feed though, because um I I do listen to each and every one of our episodes, uh mainly because I just want to make sure that they came out like without any huge technical glitches. <laughs> but sure. it did upload into. I I do follow the feed, so it did um it did upload. Um. Okay. Listening to it, I thought it went very very well. Okay. I was surprised that I wasn't more casting more shade myself against organized religion, considering I am not um, the biggest fan of, of at least the type of organized religion that he was a part of in describing in the book. Um, You know, I have a lot of issues with, with those particular, uh, those particular denomination. I'm trying to think of word. I don't want to say sect, I guess, denomination or branch, of Christianity as, as a whole and the way it has, uh, you know, w- what it does, especially considering I've, I've personally seen, you know, it's effects on, on, on families and, and students and people I that I have and people I, that I know, uh, and stuff like that. Um, how did, I mean, in retrospect, how did you think it, it, it went? I, uh,
0: I didn't listen to it. I didn't listen to it back. I don't. I honestly don't listen to episodes that I'm on once they post.
2: Stella doesn't like the sound of her own voices. So I doesn't like the sound of mine.
0: Oh, I, I, well. If you wanna, that's your words on mine. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we got into it as much as we potentially could have. I, I mean, I know we discussed some of it. I just wonder if maybe there was more that we could have we could have talked about, mm-hmm. but. Um, um, I mean, I remember having discussions on it, and I know that, yeah, but I don't know. I, I just left it feeling like, oh, maybe I didn't tackle it as well as I, I potentially could have. So so I'll, I'll look forward to see. Maybe if there are follow-up questions, then I can alleviate that negative feeling that I have.
2: I, I, would, I would love to hear follow-up questions. Um, I did listen to the episode, as I mentioned. I thought it came out really, really good. So I thought you did a really, really good job. Uh, but, you know, my opinion is... Worth what? So, um, so please let us know. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so please let us know. Um, yeah. So that's it. And and uh, you know the 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 episodes and the and the recordings kind of have gone back and forth over the over the last couple of months, and they're going to go back and forth for the next couple of months because both of us are just very busy as far as our schedules are concerned. But we are committed to trying to get an episode out each month despite craziness in terms of work and life and and apparently wi-fi connections as this has gone tonight Um, i
0: guess so i can't wait to see how you edit this
2: i'll let you know um (laughs) yeah yeah this is this is what like watch me like wait until the night before to edit it anyway um just like one of my students in their papers but uh -uh. we are we are at the end of our, our discussion here so um thank you as always and i guess before we go there's one more question to ask and that is what are we reading for next episode
0: Yes, I went back and forth on this because, listeners, 2020 is the year that I finished my Rory Gilmore's reading reading list. Wow. And this involved I think there are 54 books left on this. I know. So the thing would be basically any book that I, I am reading, I will have to make Tom read. And so I considered the, the – which the first one was Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter by Simone Beauvoir. Beauvoir. But uh. it's a memoir, of course of course and we just did a memoir right. so I decided no so what I decided I did is something that I can do for school and this we are now going to read my favorite poem The Aeneid by Virgil
2: oh are we reading a specific translation
0: I'm going to read Fitzgerald but you can choose, which, okay. choose whichever one you want
2: because I have a copy of Fagels sitting on my two reads Okay. Now. is that okay
0: That's fine by me.
2: Okay, cool. All right, cool. So, until then, um, you can check us out on follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, uh, email, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And uh, as always, thank you very much for listening and take care.
0: And may the baby Yoda be with you.
2: Baby Yoda. Good night.
0: for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreadingwithtomandstella.
2: If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes.
0: We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes?
2: If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out.
0: Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.